this week on the Backtable Podcast. Turbulent surgery is a, uh, a surgery that helps thousands and thousands of patients every year, and it's not something to be maligned. I just think that because it can be associated with excessive tissue loss, aggressive aspects you know, along the, even the length of the turbine that can lead to scarring and lead to little changes in the contour, that we just have to be respectful of the procedure and the fact that we're guests in people's noses. We're guests in people's noses for a few hours, and they have to live with what we do for their life or for a long time. Conservative and small changes can lead to massive benefit for patients. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the podcast. I'm Ashley Agan. I'm a general ENT. My name is Gopi Shaw. I'm a pediatric ENT. How are you doing today, Ash? Doing great, Gopi. Always a great day to be podcasting with you. And uh, today with us as our guest, we have Dr. Jaker Nyack. He is an associate professor of otolaryngology at Stanford and specializes in rhinology and school-based surgery. He's a surgeon scientist and heads an NIH R01-funded basic science and translational research lab with three main areas of interest, including the use of nasal stem cells to treat airway disease, nasal epithelial responses following SARS-CoV-2 infection, and improving surgical procedures to optimize outcomes for nasal and sinus procedures. Um, and he's here today to talk to us about nasal breathing, nasal physiology, the evaluation and treatment of the empty nose syndrome. Welcome to the show, Jaker. Hey, pleasure to meet you. Thanks for inviting me to the show. Thanks for coming on. Can you first just tell us a little bit about yourself and your practice? Sure, yeah. I've been uh, part of the Stanford faculty for about 12 years now. Started in the East Coast where I grew up in New Jersey, college at and uh, University of Pennsylvania. Studied neuroscience there, quickly got out of that and pursued more basic science and actually then clinical interests in an MD-PhD program, which is this dual degree program, because you're not sure if you want to do medicine research. I didn't think I wanted to do both. My PhD was in immunology and study of immune responses to cancer. I then didn't realize my interest in surgery, but they developed uh, quickly at a place like Pittsburgh, which is um, a very strong program, I'd say in otolaryngology and all surgery specialties, actually. Then finished, uh, went into the program in ENT or otolaryngology in Pittsburgh, where I then garnered an interest in sinus and skull-based disorders called rhinology. So I then pursued a rhinology fellowship uh, back at the University of Pennsylvania. And finished that, finishing that fellowship year, really became super excited about this area of the nose, the upper airway, sometimes we call it, and was recruited to Stanford here now, again, 12 years ago where I've pursued both this medical and surgical interest in nasal and sinus problems. Sometimes we work in nurse surgery to tackle the skull base tumors and pathology that kind of intersect the junction between the nose and the brain. And then um, I've kept my interest in science alive with basic science and translational efforts, looking at, again, as you just mentioned, some of these uh, nasal epithelial biology, both on the stem cell side, this kind of the epithelial side, and the immunology side looking at multiple facets of how the upper airway immune system and lining of the nose help us interact with the environment and help us promote and form defenses against uh, pathogens and things like that. But again, thanks for having me on. It's great to be here. Yeah, fantastic. We've got some questions for you, sir. You are the expert today. <laughs> <laughs> I think... Sounds great. Happy to field them. 
So let's just set the stage, you know, when we're talking about the nose and nasal obstruction and kind of the anatomy we're talking about. Talk to us about the nasal turbinates, the nasal cycle, the nasal vestibular swell body or, or swell bodies or nasal turbinates. Like what's going on in the nose? What's all that stuff in there for? And how does it relate to how we're breathing? Right. Thanks for the very broad <laughs> and open-ended question. That's very <laughs> sweet of you. Uh, it's really more early morning on Saturday for this. Um, so in terms of just nasal breathing, one of the things that rhinologists and general otolaryngologists and pediatric otolaryngologists see is one of the major complaints that patients come in for is, I can't breathe through my nose. My nose is congested. My nose is stuffy. So we have a job of trying to figure out why that might be. There are so many reasons. Um, patients can have nasal obstruction. We'll just call it that for ease. And nasal obstruction can be from something like a deviated septum. The septum is the midline central wall of our nose. Ideally, it would be central and divide our nose into left and right sides evenly. But many times that structure is crooked. That wall is bent to the left, to the right, actually to both sides. Sometimes that wall is fractured from trauma or from a sports injury, things like that. That's one major and very common reason for nasal obstruction. Two is nasal polyps, growth in the nose, inflammatory growth in the nose that can block either left or both nasal cavities. In kids, adenoids. Adenoids are in the very back of the nose, and that can lead to blockage of air passage from the nose into the throat and lungs. But another major component of nasal breathing are these other dynamic structures in the nose called turbinates, and what we termed the nasal vestibular bodies back in 2016. We actually coined that term. So the turbinates are these shelf-like structures, torpedo-shaped structures, that uh, hang in many cases from the sidewalls of the nose, which are the inferior turbinates, and kind of are pendant, like chandeliers, into the airway in the lower part of the nose. And those are the inferior turbinates. There are two sets of turbinates in the central part of the nose called the middle turbinates, and two others that are even higher in the nose, and they are called the superior turbinates. Those two turbinates are more attached to the skull base centrally and superiorly. So again, all three, though, sort of hang and are suspended within the nose, and they are directly involved in our, in our airflow and in sensation of airflow. I think one of the remarkable facts about turbinates is that all mammals have turbinates. All mammals have at least six turbinates. Um, so the inferior ones are the ones that are just behind our nostrils. Again, there's these finger-like or torpedo-like structures that are about five centimeters long from front to back. And the middle turbinates, again, are, are higher, and then superior turbinates are higher than that. But the six sets of turbinates are on all species, and they must be there for a reason. So if through evolution and development, all mammal species have evolved this mechanism for breathing through the nose through these tubular torpedo-like structures. So now, lower mammals have more turbinates. They're called ethmoturbinals in the back of the nose because other lower vertebrates are uh, more dependent on sense of smell. So those more turbinates are thought to be more involved in smell. We've lost those other turbinates because we're, we are thought to have more dependence on sight and sound. But again, at least those six turbinates are preserved throughout so many species. So again, their importance must be there. With that said, the lower turbinates, those inferior turbinates in humans, I think more than any other species, I don't know about the other species too well, the inferior turbinates somehow tend to swell or hypertrophy in humans. And because they're right behind the nostrils, they can completely congest or obstruct the nose and they kind of tend to take a life on their own. And so this is a major and very common cause of nasal obstruction in patients. And so understanding what are the, what are the actual cause of that nasal obstruction, again, it could be multifactorial 
or sometimes just one cause. But um, turbine hypertrophy is extremely common as a cause for um, nasal obstruction. And then finally, we identified, because I see so many patients with nasal obstruction and now empty nose syndrome, which we're going to talk about. These are little swell bodies that we, I started to see so commonly in some patients with persistent and recalcitrant nasal obstruction. And there are these swell bodies that are on the, more towards the nasal floor. If you look at the nose from the front, if you think of the, the nostril like a clock, the six o'clock position of the nostril, or the four o'clock and eight o'clock positions of the nostril in a way, just in the corner, just behind the nostril, there are these swell bodies that tend to form. A good number of patients, about 25 to 30% of patients have these uh, little swell bodies too. So that can naturally also take up some of the room of your nostril, just like a turbinate can, and just like a deviated septum can. Any of those things can contribute to your sense of poor airflow or lack of airflow. In the end, you asked me what these structures are. So I think I tried to define what the general makeup is from nasal obstruction and what can contribute to it. But then what the turbines actually do, we learn in residency that the turbines are there to filter airflow. They filter pollutants and bacteria and viruses. You know, they kind of are our first screen for air from our nose to get trapped into the mucus so that those particles don't end up in your lung and trachea. So that's one. Two, because the turbinates have such a good blood supply, and all of the tissue in our nose is pink. So compared to the skin, right? The skin is a, is a different texture to it and a different color to it because the vessels are a little lower. In the nose, the tissue is pink because the vessels are so close to the surface, right? It's a very thin epithelium compared to the skin on our hands and feet. So because of that, therefore, the blood supply and the warmth Air that enters our nose can be warm more easily because it comes in closer contact to the mucosa of the nose, the pink tissue of the nose. So it's thought that the na nasal tissues and the turbinates and the, the general nasal mucosa warms the air that we breathe. So that's another function of the nose and the nasal physiology and turbinates. But we, we've also found that from our research, it seems to be that another role of the turbine is actually almost uh, serving as a magnet for airflow so that the air is actually attracted to these, especially the lowest four structures, the two inferior turbinates left and right, the two middle turbinates left and right. And so absence of one of those turbinates actually lead to very aberrant airflow because that magnet is gone and then airflow and, uh, is distributed in an abnormal way. Whereas when the turbine is present, it almost attracts air to it because it must be because of its tubular structure and tubular appearance. And um, that must be part of the nasal physiology, again, because its absence in some patients, not all patients, can lead to very aberrant and uncomfortable airflow. You mentioned nasal vestibular swell bodies on the floor and the anteriorly. What about the swell bodies that we talk about sometimes on the septum? Is that a thing, if you will, as well? Is that recent or does that contribute to nasal airflow or obstruction? Great question. So we coined the term nasal vestibular body based on that previously coined term called the uh, septal body. So this, the nasal septum, there you can have multiple swell bodies in the nose. Um, I should say that. Throughout the length of the septum, I have such a variety of patients out there now who see me for persistent nasal obstruction and, and complex nasal obstruction issues. But I have seen swell bodies throughout the length of the septum, posterior septum, which isn't something you, you, we learn about, central septum. But the septal body is this anterior or front of the nose, superior, top of the nose, swelling that can happen two centimeters in and two centimeters superiorly to the nostril. So yes, it can. I've seen some patients that have such a large septal swell body that it seems to obstruct and, and almost descend 
towards the nostril and contribute to nasal obstruction. And because when I decongest that structure with some topical decongestants we have in the office and only that structure, patients, some patients will say, wow, that's so much better. I can breathe so much better. So there are, there, again, people can have multiple components to this, but the fact is that airflow typically happens in the lowest one-third in the nose. The majority of airflow happens in the lowest one-third of our nose, which is basically, if you think of the nose in thirds, the lower part of the nostril to the top of the nostril, let's call that one-third, that part to kind of the bottom of your eyes, another third, and the, the top third above that. The, most of the airflow happens in the, in the, in the lowest one-third of the nose. If you looked at the vectors of airflow that are modeled in computer modeling, it's in the lowest one-third of the nose, and maybe the lowest part of the second third, right? So that means right around the nostril area, right around the inferior turbinates, and just the base of the middle turbinates. That's where most of the airflow goes. The septal body, therefore, is usually above that. So it's not really always involved in airflow, but it can be when it's enlarged enough. Similarly, the middle turbinates aren't extremely involved in airflow, maybe 10 to 20% of the airflow versus 80% in the lower one-third of the nose. But some people have a large middle turbinates that descend and can, you know, really compress or restrict the airflow. So that even a middle turbinate can be part of that. But I'd say the majority of patients is mostly inferior turbinates. And if there's a septal deviation or crookedness that's there or a polyp that descends all the way into the lower one third of your nose, those are the things that will contribute to true nasal obstruction. And for the, these swell bodies that develop, is there a a hypothesis or a known reason why some people are developing these, it's almost like extra turbinate tissue in the nose? Is it, what's the thought? Yeah, no, it's a great question. I don't, I don't think we know. Um, we actually are looking at the histology of that nasal vestibular body and the, towards the floor of the nose and the, these front corners of the nose. But the histology seems to be similar to turbinate tissue and to especially the septal swell body tissue. Just an area of a buildup of some pyloral erector kind of tissue some just excessive soft tissue, but it's dynamic because there's definitely some vessels in there that swell and unswell. All of these structures that I, that I was mentioning before are not static structures. The turbinates can swell and unswell, and there's something called diurnal variation of the nose that you learn also when we do our specialty where the left side turbinate might swell every 8 to 12 to 16 hours. If that's happening, then the opposite turbinate, the right turbinate, is shrinking. And Similarly, that'll, if you take a CAT scan of that patient, then one day later, it might be the opposite, where now the right turbine is hypertrophied and the left turbine is shrunk down. So there's clearly some sympathetic or parasympathetic innervation to those turbinates that are providing this alternating variation, left side and right side. And some patients can even notice this. I've never noticed nasal obstruction on either side at any time except for standard viral cold or rhinovirus, you know, URI. But other than that, my turbinates are swelling and unswelling on left and right sides, and yours might be too. But I don't notice it. But some patients, they'll say, I notice right away. I'm always blocked on my left side. And tomorrow's going to be the right side. And if they sleep on a certain side, the side that's down towards the pillow congests more. Um, and I switch the side that I'm sleeping on, and that side congests. Sometimes some patients are extremely aware of this. And one thing about the nose that will always be the case, I think, is the nose is a very subjective place. You might have the most severe 100% blockage of your nose on the left side from a severe cartilage and bone septal deviation. And some patients will say, I can't breathe through my left side. I hate my left side of breathing. But you, you, know, you survey another 50 patients and they'll say, I love my breathing. I have no breathing problems whatsoever. <laughs> Even though they have the same degree of obstruction. That's because they're breathing so well through the right side, they never notice their left side. So that happens frequently. Some people have severe turbinate hypertrophy. 
and they'll swear that they've never had a breathing problem, they don't snore, and they've never had complaints about any aspect of their breathing, and they're uh, completely fine. Uh, you'd mentioned the diurnal system, the subjective sensation. When patients come in and they say they sleep on one side, I don't really know how to explain. I don't think I really understand, you know, when they come to me with that kind of complaint. How do you respond to patients, you know, with some of those observations that they have? I mean, you know they have those symptoms, but I don't always know how to say why they have those symptoms. Yeah. I explain it that, that first, the nose has so many differences between every individual compared to other structures. Let's just say, let's compare it to the heart. The heart is such a tightly regulated and tightly defined structure. It's a structure that's within our chest behind muscle and skin, muscle, bone, ribs, and it's always roughly the same size and roughly the same angle and position. It has chambers and the valves are even the same size in virtually everybody, virtual adults. And so, you know, when you have a valve problem, everyone has the same physiology. Everyone's going to have some kind of heart issues, some kind of weakness, fatigue. You'll need to see a doctor, you know, you might need a procedure done. You know, and also surgery for the heart are very well defined. There's so much more research and thousands of doctors who, who do research every year compared to like ENT specialties where are, there aren't many labs and that much research going on. Again, the idea being that it's a tightly regulated system by size, by physiology, by even, you know, constants, numerics. We know about all the blood flow and, and chambers and strength and so many aspects of, of cardiac physiology and flow. Compare that to the nose where you just look at, around the, any room. The nostril size is different in everybody. The nasal shape is different. Some people have curved and angled noses. Some people have broad nostrils and longer noses, wider noses, uh, smaller noses. Similarly, we have all these variables of DV to septum and turbinate enlargement and not. Some people have had surgery and not. So the point that I think that the airflow is so different in everybody. Also, what's going to happen and what's going to affect my, my ability to breathe through my nose is how much lung capacity I have. So if I, my lungs, don't work so well, then I'm not expecting to breathe so well through my nose. And you're used to that, and you just get used to those things. So again, I think so many variables go into our nose shape, anatomy, structure, and airflow that I think that, as a result, everyone's sensation of airflow and what they get used to is so subjectively different. So that's one. And then I think that we don't know too much about this yet, but the innervation that I think people have and the receptors people have for that sense airflow might be very different in individuals. That some people seem to be extremely sensitive to little changes in their airflow. It might be some of those patients I mentioned before that they notice left side versus right side. Others don't. Some people you, we know are very hypersensitive to perfumes and changes in the environment and you know the, oh, the humidity. I, I know right away I'm going to get congested today. I've never felt that. I don't have that kind of barometer that's so tightly tuned. So in any case, I think that there might be those kind of receptor changes and differences between people that, again, make us different and just individual. And those things will be ferreted out with time. But for now, I think that's it's just something that we accept. And similarly, we accept other variations. If you have fingers that are different sized, you know, you just get used to it. <laughs> it's not like there's anything wrong with you. It's just, just considered a, a, a variation in the size of certain parts of your body. But it's okay. It's within the normal range. And so I think that also is something that we just learn to get used to. If we get that used to in our hands and our joints, then we probably get used to it with our nose. Yeah, that makes sense. Moving on towards clinical presentation, when patients come to you, what are some of the main complaints or how do they present? But 
more importantly, what are you always asking in the history? What are some of the things that you always remember to ask your patients? When patients come to see me, again, I have a wide range of patients. I do have some primary patients who may have heard about me or want to see a Dr. Sanford, and they've never had surgery in their nose. Just yesterday, I saw someone who had a surgery she was very unhappy with from another state, and I've had other patients who come in after nine surgeries in their nose. Either way, try to assess everyone in the same general capacity. What specifically are your symptoms? And are they left-sided primarily, right-sided primarily, or you just can't tell? You want to see what their nasal regimen is. Are they doing anything that makes them feel better? Saline rinses, nasal steroid sprays, a combination of sprays. Some patients are using a moisturizer in their nose, ointments or certain gels, things like that. Naturally, you want to know about the, any past uh, surgeries, past procedures, trauma to the nose. And then what generally is their goal? Maybe they came in because they had a recent diagnosis of sleep apnea and they actually have no nasal obstruction but they were told that their nose is a problem because they can't tolerate CPAP, the CPAP mask, for positive pressure. So you need to find out maybe what you can do to help them just tolerate their CPAP mask more. So sometimes that's not a nasal obstruction complaint. That's, I came here because my doctor told me to come here. But those are a range of things, I think, that are important to, to uh, suss out when you're meeting a patient. And um, on your exam, are you scoping every patient that comes in? Do you always decongest? Actually, to go back to the last question, the, the one thing I also, you know, try to figure out is like what helps them and again, what their nasal regimen is and does afrin help them or not? Does a nasal decongestant like afrin or something called major decongestant, there are multiple decongestants out there, does that help them or do they feel worse on that? That really helps to put them into a category of that tissue enlargement is causing their problem and therefore tissue shrinking from afrin or a decongestant really impacts their quality of life, impacts their sleep. That's a big aspect of what you can learn from someone just from interviewing them without even looking in their nose. Now, in the Stanford Rhinology practice, because patients have both sinus and nasal uh, problems, I rarely use a nasal speculum anymore. So virtually everybody in my practice gets an, an endoscopy. Everyone gets an endoscopy of the anterior nasal cavity, left side and right side, prior to any decongestant. So I see every new patient native, no spray, of any kind, and just want to see that that vestibular body is a present or absent. The presence of uh, hypertrophy, even to the anterior head of the turbinate, presence of caudal or anterior septal deviation on the left side or right side. And then once that's documented, uh, everything is archived and we have photo documentation of everything and it's uh, saved on our you know servers. And then after that, if they, for example, have empty nose syndrome or something like that that I have to test, then I'll do a cotton test, which we can get into. But if they don't, and it's just sort of standard nasal obstruction or sleep apnea or something like that, then I will put in a topical decongestant. I try to do it on a cotton swab or a, a pledget because I don't want the spray going globally. I just want to kind of address that lower one-third nasal obstruction. So I try to put cotton pledges and decongestant on the turbinates and on the swell bodies and then leave them in for only a minute and a half or so and then take them out. And then I suggest ask if patients are feeling better. They usually don't know what I'm doing. I ask them to just trust me and... <laughs> Because I want them to just sort of not be biased by everything I'm doing. Just sort of like, I did something to your nose. Do you like it or not? And many times they're just they're like amazed. Some they've never tried Afrin and they're like, yes, I love this. <laughs> I love this breathing. This is exactly how I want to breathe. This is amazing. That kind of thing. And that's great because they're not really know what's coming. They just heard that I'm the doctor to see or I'm one of the doctors to see. 
and they have an experience that they know is very beneficial for them, which is great. And then from there, we can decide, you know, what the best pathway is for them. Now, some patients, that, that's why you do it. They're, they will say to you, no, I feel exactly the same with Afrin. Okay, so great. I just needed to know that. And then let's figure out what else might be the problem. And they do find other pathology that might be there. And it might be, again, a completely different issue than you were expecting at the time. And then, of course, some patients come in with imaging. So yeah, we're going to analyze that imaging. In those cases, CAT scans or MRIs, that'll help you determine where the issue might be. Can we go back to how you decongest the nose? So you're not spraying the Afrin. Are you using the like sinus surgery pledgets, the long, like one by three pledgets, dip it in the Afrin, and then with a, a bayonet packing the nose? Is that kind of what you mean? The truth be told, I actually even like cotton balls that I unroll and the, the, some, they come in like a little rolled kind of confirmation. But in any case, I just kind of separate them out. I make these little, my own pledgets that are two centimeters by one centimeter. I just like them a lot better because they're just softer and not the woven cotton that you get in these surgical pledgets that we use in the operating room and they have a string on them. I just don't do it that way, but I just make these pledgets beforehand and have them in these little containers. So each patient gets a container that has just decongestant in it like Afrin, for example, or phenylephrin, and that'll just place with a bayonet, right, not to the turbinates, and then I'll just ask them if they're breathing better. Then, separately, I'll decongest separately with a smaller pledget, that the nasal vestibular body, on left side and right side, and then ask them, okay, are you better by 50% with a turbinate, or now are you better or not with the second thing we did? Sometimes they'll say no, sometimes they'll say absolutely, things like that. So I'm just trying to even ferret out and try to investigate is it just your turbine hypertrophy that's causing your obstruction on your left side or right side? Is it just your swell body on left side or right side um, that's contributing to, again, your sense of nasal obstruction? And then, again, do you enjoy this or not? Because they'll be decongested for about two or three hours after you place that in. So then, um, then they get to experience that for a few hours at least um, on their drive home or hotel or, or wherever. So, yeah, that's how I like to do it. The reason is that um, sometimes our sprays, especially if the spray has lidocaine in it, patients just don't like it. And so much of the visit is sometimes spent like, I don't know, my, my throat's really uncomfortable and they're coughing and hacking and they need water and all this extra spray goes down the throat and it just turns into this slightly traumatic kind of experience and, and visit. And I'd rather just keep it in the nasal as much as possible and just talk about the nasal problem and not deal with this little dripping of the posterior nose and throat and swelling to the throat that they feel and Anyway, I'm just trying to make it as clean as possible, but it does take time to do it. Yeah. Uh, how long do you leave them in there for? I leave them in there for about a minute, maybe a minute each side. And then like, I'm always alternating sides. So then I'll take it out. So I'll put it in the left side. Then I'll put it in the right side. Then we'll talk for 30 seconds, get in the little part of history. Then I'll take it out of the left side and right side. And then I'll take pictures again, by the way. I'll do no photo documentation of them after decongestion. And you'll see that some patients even need two rounds of decongestion. Their turbines are so huge or their swell body is so huge, they have to do a second round. And then they're like, yes, oh, I didn't even feel that. And, you know, whenever any doctor did this, I never, it was only 10% better. Now that you did this twice and you took the time to do that, now I see that's because many patients have central and posterior turbine hypertrophy that the first pledges couldn't even get to. So the first pledge was placed in the first two centimeters. And now that you can see that first two centimeters and you should take a photo of that, oh, I see, I can't, I still can't see the coena. I can't see the back of the nose. All right, let's try again. So then I put a second pledge of deeper in. Now I decongest the entire length of the five centimeter turbinate on both sides. And they're like, oh, that is some of the best breathing I've had in years or so. And um, then you can really say like, okay, they have 
nasal obstruction from, you know, just anterior head hypertrophy of the turbinate, which is that front part of the turbinate, or is it central or is it posterior? And I'd say actually uh, with uh, some of the redo and recalcitrant patients that I have seen over the years, many of whom thought they had MPNO syndrome, for example, it turns out that just, you know, looking in their nose as a new observer and analyzer of their, of what's happening to them, many of these patients who don't like their breathing and they, again, subjectively think they have this empty nose syndrome problem, a good fraction of them just had posterior turbine hypertrophy. That's it. But they, were, they came from miles and sometimes other states and everything to just for that. And so all I do is decongest their nose. Then, uh, you know, but before, because surgery helped give them this conundrum, then in that case, I'll ask them to use Afrin at home once a week. Just once a week because your nose can get addicted to Afrin. I just have them spray in this decongestant spray on their own. Let's continue your nasal regimen six days of the week. But every Sunday, I want you to document for me with a spreadsheet, you know, what your symptoms were, zero to 10, during the six days. And then on the seventh day, when you use Afrin, how was your nasal obstruction symptom on the left side or right side? And if it every time improves to a lower number, lower for me is better on the number scale, then great. Then I think we've proven that even in your home environment in Nevada, in Southern California, in the Bay Area, in New York, wherever they're coming from, okay, that where you live, you have the same experience that you had in my office. Okay, then it is posterior turbinate hypertrophy. I think we were right about that. Then we can talk about what to do about that. But I do think that just that little test is just underutilized. And I think we're sometimes underanalyzing patients' nasal cavities. Let's go into nasal regimens. You know, I typically think of saline. I think of some Flonase. Do you have a sort of an algorithm or what do you like to have patients try or what do you think helps, doesn't help if they've done the Flonase or Dimista and that doesn't work? What's your regimen? I usually say to, to, uh, to patients that being on uh, some kind of nasal regimen is, is just necessary to, for us to assess what the best things are that'll help you. And at minimum, they need to be on a nasal regimen because if we do a procedure, the, you know, saline sprays is going to be part of their care and part of their healing process. So they should get used to being on a, on a regimen anyway. But what's my standard nasal regimen is a nasal saline of any type. Frequent use of saline mist, frequent use of uh, ocean spray, deep sea spray. Those are just little spritzer bottles of salt water or a Neil Med or similar type of saline rinse where a patient makes it themselves with an eight ounce bottle of clean water and they put in a salt packet that's buffered with both sodium bicarbonate and salt. Do you think sinus rinses, you know, that we were talking about now is better for the turbinate hypertrophy nasal obstruction patients or do you think saline mist or drops are the same or enough? I don't, that's a great question. I don't think anyone knows. Um, I personally feel like just anything that they're putting in their nose that saline is better than not putting it in. And I think that as long as you're doing it, there's some patients who you know, just insist that nasal rinses go up their ear, makes them uncomfortable. So I'd rather them do some kind of saline like a mist than not. I do think that larger volume rinses have changed rhinology practice. Every study that's ever looked at nasal saline has shown benefit. And I think thousands of surgeries have probably been canceled or postponed because patients have benefited from the use of nasal saline. I just think of it as just a generic wash for the nose. I think of it like, and I describe it as like brushing your teeth. You feel better after brushing your teeth. You feel a little more sanitary a little better, a little cleaner. And I think that clearing out mucus from the nose for a lot of patients is great with the saline. Also, you know, water is thought to be, you know, follow the salt water, right? So there's a little bit of salt water outside of the tissues will draw 
fluid away from the tissues and hopefully reduce hypertrophy, even for a short amount of time, reduce some of the swelling from the tissues in the nose. So I think larger volume is always better, but again, it's, it depends on patient tolerance. If you're dealing with children, it's hard to get any kind of spray in the nose, so we'll take anything. I tell them it's like brushing their teeth or flossing. Their rinses are my flossing. If I don't floss, I get <laughs> cavities. Like, that's just me. If they aren't rinsing, we're going to have boogers. They're going to be everywhere. Right. No, there is. you go. So <laughs> so anyway, yeah, so I think that um, saline is, is, is the mainstay of care, no matter what. It just... It's been around for thousands of years and there's nothing you have to worry about. There's so many patients who ask about their side effects of every medication and everything. This is not a medication even. This is just a home remedy that's been around for thousands of years. So use it. It's safe. And then I always have a recommended nasal steroid spray of some kind. Similarly, there are spritzer bottles like the three over-the-counter ones, you know, of Flonase, Azacort, and Rhinocort. And there are about seven plus prescription ones. And Whatever's best for the patient is fine. They're all just different variants of steroids, just different small, slight versions and percentages of steroids. So user's choice on if they want to go over the counter, if their insurance covers whatever spray, I'll use that. Does your body get used to them? Like, do you have to change them out every six months or do you believe in that? Yeah. I usually just start with some of the generics and the over-the-counter ones. And some patients feel like it wasn't working for them. And then that like uh, the Flonase stopped working for them for some reason. So then, well, sure, we can try that. I don't know if that is well documented that there is tolerance to these medications. They're just considered to be standard. Tens of thousands of patients have been studied over decades. Uh, that is, we know it's safe. And that um, I don't think that there's a tolerance per se to, to any of these uh, medic medications. There's such a low concentration. There's a 0.25% steroid in these bottles. So that's why there are probably so much less harm in general. But it's a rare patient who comes in and, and says that. There's also, it's also a rare patient that comes in, and they do say this, that when they use X nasal steroid spray, I get palpitations. I get jittery. I can't, I'm like, you know, <laughs> one in a thousand will say that, but they'll say it. Yeah. And then, you know, you have to adjust. It might be true. And initially I dismissed it, but again, enough patients have said it over the years. It's like, okay, maybe it's true. The other thing is that uh, I try to put patients on topical actually rinses again, and I try to get two birds on with one stone. I put saline rinses that they've made at home, the Neomed squeeze bottles are most commonly known, I'm pretty sure. And you add in a budesonide steroid to it or mometazone steroid to it. And budesonide is easily found. It's FDA approved for asthma and reactive airway disease. But most rhinologists I know use it very liberally in the nose. There's been a few papers on its utility for post-operative healing, things like that. But the idea that now a wash that has the saline benefit, but also has a slight um, a higher dose steroid in it than higher dose inflonase. Now you're adding this to the tissues and it's permeating the lower no nasal cavity and that, that central third of the nasal cavity, then I think that's a really good benefit for a lot of patients. And I have a lot of patients who said that saline and flonase didn't help me, but saline plus budesonide, that combination rinse really benefited me for pain or something like facial pressure for just nasal congestion for CPAP working better. So I definitely try those things first. For some patients, then if they, we have a known allergy component, I'll add in one of the antihistamine sprays, Astralin or Astapro. And that's a great nasal regimen in my book. And that they can continue safely for years if they never come back or if they um, come from a far distance from Stanford. So don't worry about those as much. And then if you're, they're on budesonide rinses though, the, really the data's only been published for like six months for safety. So I try not to have people on budesonide rinses, except for that short period of time, maybe up to six months or so. And then I try to get them off of that and try to get them on one of the standard regimens of saline plus X nasal steroid spray. 
And do you do you like to see that they've tried something conservative for an X certain amount of time before you start talking about different procedures like turbinate reductions and things, or does it just depend on the patient? I mean, I think that no matter what, I mean, that it's best for so many reasons to have tried conservative approaches, medical management for any number of reasons in all of our fields probably, but especially in rhinology. One, it's relationship building. I just saw a new patient just yesterday, new mild sleep apnea diagnosis, had tried variations of sprays, isolated saline, isolated flonase, a few weeks here, a few weeks there, and then finally came through. But he just never tried anything consistently. He just, it wasn't emphasized to him. And looking at his nose, he looked like very blue, almost congested mucosa, very allergic. And then I asked him about his allergy history, and he didn't tell me before, but his, he had an allergy testing. His, his back was red, was beat red from all the allergens he was positive to. And he just never tried immunotherapy before. So for him, I said, we have to go back to your allergist. We have to really be on immunotherapy for one or two years. Because no matter what, if I do a procedure in your nose, you're going to have this baseline inflammation that's going to be present. And that's not going to be fair to you. You're going to have probably repeat nasal congestion earlier than you should, even after procedure. You might be initially better, but I think that's, you're going to, we're going to be fighting this baseline inflammation. So let's get better regular use of topical regimen, which is instituted for him, consistent saline followed by nasal service spray. He was using Flonase and he'd never heard of Astelin. So put him on his antihistamine spray. He'll try to use that consistently for the next six months. He'll actually initiate. He's, he was hesitant about immunotherapy. I said, I just think that it has, it's a mainstay of your care in this case. And this point, and I'll see him in a year and we'll see where things are. And then from there, then I think it's also relationship building. He knows that I didn't just rush to surgery. I didn't rush to a procedure. He gets on a regimen that I think for insurance reasons, they would love to see that because most patients in my practice try to get insurance coverage for their procedures. And that's fine with me. Uh, but insurance wants to see that documentation then. And then also, it's just for the fact that procedures can go badly. Procedures can go south sometimes. Again, thankfully, it's not that common. But when it does, I think it's nice for anyone to, for you to talk to the family or to talk to the patient and say, like, we tried all the conservative stuff. And so that's why we went to a procedure. And, you know, sorry that, you know, you're having that, this or that issue. And maybe there's too much more pain than I told you it would be, or you're having a longer recovery than I thought it would be. But at least we tried everything else and you still really felt, and we all felt, your best with Afrin. And there's no way I can give you Afrin consistently because those addictive properties and those problems. So the only way I can get you the Afrin effect, if all the sprays and the nasal regimen and the conservative measures aren't doing it, well, if that's what we're going for, then we have to talk about the procedures, which can be done in the office or the OR. And do the steroid sprays or the, you know, saline, does it help for the swell bodies, whether it's the vestibular swell body or the septal swell body? No, that's a great question. Um, I don't know. We mostly think about them for, for the turbinates that I have documented for some patients with a photo archiving. I do think that I definitely have 5 to 8% of my patients who have remarkable responses to these sprays, which is also another reason to try them, of course, because they work. They have just good decongestion with regular use of these topical uh, nasal regimens. It's not, it's not extremely common, but for that, let's call it 10% of patients, they're thrilled. There was a simple enough regimen for them to use. They can do it twice a day, just like brushing your teeth. You just get used to it. And they have, the nasal function is, is significantly or markedly improved, and they're in a much better place. So that's great. But the actual swell body is only, I'm saying, 20 to 30% of patients even have them to begin with. Septal swell body, again, is not always part of the airway and part of something that we need to document very regularly. 
unless it's really descending into the nasal cavity and blocking your view even. I don't know if it's known as much about those. And it's hard to directly tell. There's some of these endoscopic differences. You can convince yourself that it's better or worse just by zooming in and zooming out with your scope. <laughs> and you think that it's bigger, uh, the swelling might be better or worse. So you try to, it's hard to standardize some of these uh, measurements, quote unquote, because a lot of it's just your naked eye. But some are very dramatically improved just with sprays. But every structure in the nose, are they improved? Hard to know. And like we talked about earlier, even it doesn't matter what it looks like. If the patient feels better, <laughs> sometimes it may, the way it looks doesn't always match up with how they're feeling. I agree with that completely. I have some patients, they look just as obstructed. I have a lady who uh, came in for severe nasal obstruction. I cannot sleep. I need to do something. Something happened to me in the last two years during COVID. I didn't want to come in during COVID, but now I just can't take it. I just put her on a standard nasal regimen, everything we just talked about. And then she became pregnant. And came back and she was a, it was a rescheduled six months visit. So I just thought, I heard she was pregnant before I walked in the door. So I assumed now it was rhinitis of pregnancy, which is usually even worse than the initial nasal obstruction. And she came in just to tell me, thank you. She is breathing so much better with the saline plus budesonide rinse that I put her on. Now she's going to go back to just saline plus Flonase as approved by her OB. But she said that she's breathing so much better and sleeping so much better, even with pregnancy. And she just wanted me to know. <laughs> so... The solutions for people are all over the map. I think it's just worth trying things. And to me, when I looked in her nose, it looked just as bad, <laughs> just as hypertrophied, just as swollen her turbinates. But to her, the main thing was her was at night. And somehow her turbinates were not congesting so much at night and was turning side to side in bed. And so uh, that was the first trimester of pregnancy. We'll see if it gets worse. But that's great. That's a great result. But again, another testament to why we should try topical nasal regimens before, uh, you know, before we procedures. They might be faster. There might be some billing benefits to it. Who knows? But the fact is that trying those things, it's better for patients. Again, that, that's a relationship I didn't expect to build. And, and I think she trusts me. Um, and she'll send family to me for a simple standard trial nasal regimen and really work for her. In terms of topical sprays, do you ever do hypertropium or do you have anything else in your armamentarium, like any other tricks that... Uh, you've used that have helped. Oh, I didn't know. I didn't know. I was. This is like divulging secrets. Oh, absolutely. Um, you know. <laughs> Welcome to uh, back podcast. table. Okay, that's fine. That's fine. That's fine. I'll, I'll share some of my secrets. No, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Uh, the yeah, the um, yeah, ipratropium. I really only use for the, the patient who really complains of recalcitrant, stubborn post nasal drip, and it's the only time I really use that. I, and I've actually, I must say, I first try the three I just mentioned regularly um, before I start getting to Atrovent or this ipratropium bromide uh, spray, which was thought to be a nasal drying agent, is that I first try saline plus nasal steroid spray XYZ plus an antihistamine spray first. That just works for the great majority of people, and it's just a standard nasal regimen throughout the U.S. or throughout the world. Now, if you, that helps you or didn't help you, we'll find out in three or four months. Sometimes you just do a video visit and then they're like, everything's the same, or maybe my nasal structure is better, maybe my sleep is better, but I still have this nagging postnasal drip. First, I make sure with their CAT scan, make sure that I'm not missing some severe sinusitis or some other severe pathology, a concerning issue there that might need antibiotics and steroids, for example. But uh, assuming that everything else is okay and it's just we're talking about that symptom of postnasal drip, then I start them on three sprays of ipratropium left and right sides twice a day. And that also is something that they can do for three or four months. 
and then we'll talk again. So now they're on four sprays, saline plus nasal steroid spray plus an intestine spray, and now a fourth spray of, at- of atrovent. But that's the kind of regimen I would want them to do before we start talking about, again, procedures in my case. when there are procedures for now for postnatal drip that are quite effective, but I, I want them to only do that if they fail those things. Again, for those reasons I talked about relationship building, for confidence that it is time to embark on a procedure for both patient and, and doctor. But also there is actually some predictive value to using some of those sprays for postnatal drip. For example, if someone has successfully used the atrovent, they have a higher chance of uh, success with cryotherapy to the postnatal nerve. If they have poor benefit and poor response to the atrovent, for example, they only have a 30% chance versus 80% chance of success. So things like that. There's so many reasons it's, it's worth trying these, these regimens, but I think I try, I try to do them in a sequential and graded fashion. Yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense. And so pivoting to patients who you are considering, you know, surgery or, you know, doing a procedure for, can we talk about turbinate reduction? Are there certain techniques that are going to be more or less likely to cause problems? I guess the biggest, most dreaded one being like creating some sort of empty nose syndrome. And can you take too much tissue? Like, how do you approach that, given that you're the guy that takes care of the empty nose and complication patients? <laughs> I don't know how that happened, but it just uh, turned into it. So I don't know if you want to talk about empty nose syndrome first. Yeah, maybe, maybe that would be good to just set the stage so that you know, listeners who may not be familiar can kind of understand what that's about. Sure. Okay, so empty nose syndrome is a, a term coined only a few decades ago with the, the idea being that when doctors, Eugene Kern and others, now retired from Mayo, looked in the nose, they said, wow, there's a lot of empty space here. Because the nasal cavity, instead of having the same structures that you're used to seeing, the two inferior turbinates, especially sometimes the two middle turbinates, wow, there's an expansive empty space here like a cavern. And so that's, I think, where the term came from. But emptiness syndrome is, is, has grown to be um, a constellation of symptoms that seem to be very commonly associated with, especially turbinate reduction surgery. Many patients have, will have and have had all types of nasal procedures. For example, sinus surgery and septoplasties and things like that. And those two surgeries do not seem to be linked to empty nose syndrome. I just have numbers of patients who, in my own practice, and just from the data that's out there, from the publications that exist, it's just never linked to those two surgeries, even though those are tissue-removing surgeries as well. We make windows into the sinuses due to sinus surgery. We remove cartilage and bone and straighten out a septum to correct a deviated crooked septum. Those procedures are not linked, but turbinates themselves, those, those tubular pendant structures in the nose, especially the lower third of the nose, when those are overly reduced, when some patients have these symptoms of interior syndrome. What are the symptoms? We were able to codify and, and validate six symptoms that are really strongly associated with empty nose syndrome. There's a, a, a metric that we have in our field called the SNOT-22, which is the Sinonasal Outcomes Test. That's 22 questions. And each of them, you rate from zero to five. And that's very closely linked to your, your, your symptom and your subjective well-being, your sense of your own well-being for sinusitis. Okay. And if you have a certain number, you're more likely to have very debilitating symptoms associated with chronic rhinosinusitis, CRS. Now, instead of making a SNOT-28, we found that there are six symptoms that are much more strongly 
and regularly associated with empty nose syndrome. And we validated that in a publication that we put out in 2016. And we call it the ENS6Q, the ENS empty nose syndrome six item questionnaire. And those six symptoms seem to be very strongly associated with empty nose syndrome. And that is the sense of suffocation, the feeling that you, you have almost a pillow over your nose, you can't get in a full breath. There's some subjective sense of like that airflow is restricted in a very uncomfortable way. Nasal crusting, the sense that your nose is just making too many little scabs and little boogers and things that, that you didn't have before. Nasal burning, the sense that airflow through your nose is painful. Some people will describe razor blade sensation. Some people will just describe a freezing sensation. It's very uncomfortable. Sometimes they'll even say things like dental pain, some eye pain, things like that. But you have to try to sort those things out. Sense of my nose feeling too open. Many patients with this empty nose issue will say that air is rushing through my nose. I don't feel a peak. I don't feel a trough. I just feel just this open cavity where air is rushing in. I feel like it's hitting my throat and it's very uncomfortable. And actually then there's also a sense of diminished airflow that I do feel congested. And it's funny, sometimes patients will say on a zero to five scale, five being terrible and zero being no symptoms, they'll often score four and five for both sense of my nose feels too open, i.e. there's a rushing of air through my nose and I feel congested, which is, sounds like too little airflow, not too much airflow, but they'll say like, yeah, I just doesn't feel like the air is properly going into my lungs. So that's why I feel congested. I can't so they have this very complex new nasal problem that they didn't have before. The main thing that they will say, though, is before this surgery, I never had any of these things. And some of them will directly admit, I mean, there, there's a whole thing about whether empty nose syndrome is psychiatric and neurologic and all these things. And I agree, I have a very different opinion on, on some of those things, or maybe I think a reasoned opinion on some of those things. But the point is that I think that those symptoms are not easy to make up. It's very interesting how patients from all over the world and multiple states all say the same relative thing, and they don't know each other, and, it's, and their description is so detailed and so specific that it's hard to describe, you know, razor blades going into your nose and a sense of disturbing crusting, and what if I feel like there's a cage around my lungs because I kept suffocating, and <laughs> I mean, very few other patients describe that. You don't describe that for standard nasal obstruction from turbine hypertrophy or adenoid hypertrophy, before surgery, I have no sinus surgery patients ever describing anything like that, and no septoplasty patients saying that. So that's the idea of empty nose syndrome. Oh, and it's associated with not just turbinate surgery, because I've done over 3,000 turbinate reductions, and I've only had maybe three patients describe something like that on one side, by the way, after my surgery. So let's say my rate of empty nose syndrome is around one in a 1,000. So let's just say that's the case. But the fact is that that I think the goal of turbinate surgery, if you fail medical management and the things we talked about before, should be to, and this is what I tell all my residents and what I tell all my fellows and those who work with me and follow and rotate with us and visiting scholars from other countries uh, to Stanford, is that the goal of turbinate surgery is to reduce the size and caliber of the turbinate from, let's say, thumb-like structures, the, these swollen torpedoes that look like thumbs, to maybe the fourth finger or a pinky, that kind of structure, but they still, it's still a recognizable tubular finger-like structure. So you should keep the contour of the turbinate as this tubular structure, just reduce its size so that there's more of a airway between the septum and the turbinate. That's it. And the, the thing with empty nose syndrome patients is that there's a vast variety of patients out there, but it's initially described as this massively open nasal cavity where the turbines have been resected. But 
in practice and we're publishing all of these things that there's a wide variety of turbinate tissue loss. Sometimes you can just have a turbinate trim where a scissor was taken to the bottom half of the turbinate. So now some of the top half of the turbinate is still present. So you still have that pendant structure in the center of the nose, but the bottom half is missing. And there's 30% turbinate trims. There's 70% turbinate trims. There's some patients with empty nose syndrome or variant of empty nose syndrome where the there's a cookie bite deformity, I call it, there, or a um, Blakesley forcep or a straight through cut instrument or a curved scissor was taken and just lop off the anterior head of the turbinate. And I've had colleagues and, and, and mentors, you know, in my training, you know, do that. And patients initially seem very happy. But then later you find out that some of those patients were unhappy with certain aspects of their breathing, things like that. So, and it's hard to know which ones are associated with emptiness syndrome because there's no, there's no standardization of the procedure of turbinate reduction. So first I would just say that, so I think it's just emptiness syndrome is that wide variety of symptoms. Some people just have suffocation. Some people have suffocation with burning. Some people just have, my nose feels too open. It doesn't have to have all of those things, but most people have a few of those six symptoms and that's in a 6Q questionnaire. Usually they have a score above 11. That's our standard for metric for determining if you have ENS. 11 to 30 on that scale. Because control patients, when we've done this for that paper, control patients score zero to five. So they'll have maybe ones for each of those symptoms and zeros. And then if you're ENS, you have threes, fours, and fives for those symptoms. And you think about it, like to my two hosts, I mean, I don't think you've ever described had nasal burning, right? It's very hard to have that. So you'll score to zero or one on that. So you'll be a control patient, right? That's what we're looking for in that symptom. And then in terms of symptoms, and then I look in their nose and I see a wide variety. I sometimes even see just a very good turbinate reduction that anyone would say, okay, I think objectively, that was a crooked septum and large turbines before surgery. You know what? After surgery, I see the CAT scan. It's a pretty straight septum and it's pretty nicely reduced turbinates. Looks pretty good. Unfortunately, some of those patients still say the same things concerning complaints. And again, I don't necessarily think they're making it up, but I test them then. And that's, that's the next step of what I am happy to talk about, but how I test them for empty nose syndrome. That's one aspect of this. The two is, then it has to be said, is that some patients with the same findings I just described, loss of the inferior turbinate, complete resection of the inferior turbinate, partial resection of the inferior turbinate, cookie bite deformity of the inferior turbinate, the majority of patients actually are happy. They know that they were breathing poorly before. They know how they had sleep apnea before. They know that their airway is better. They feel that their airway is better. And they're very content patients. Sometimes they're content for their, their lives. Sometimes they're content for a few years, and then they might develop new symptoms, things like that. But uh, unfortunately, that's the paradox of empty nose syndrome, is that not everyone, like the heart, like I said, if you damage the valve, you're going to get symptoms every time, because I think it's a tightly regulated structure for so many and in size and shape and valve quality and all these things. The nose, because of those subjective differences in size, nostril size, shape, airflow differences, lung differences, I think everyone's going to experience this. You can, if you have the same surgery in 2,000 people and only a small percentage of those patients will have empty nose syndrome because of, again, I think some of these dynamics of the nose, receptor differences in the nose, nerve input and sensitivity differences in the nose, things like that. That's why empty nose syndrome has turned into like a controversial topic, I think, because understandably, not all patients who have the same post-surgical outcome of tissue loss to the turbinate has the same symptoms. And so it's not a one-to-one -one thing for us, and it doesn't happen always immediately after surgery, the symptoms of empty nose syndrome. And then therefore you say like, wait a second, you were happy before. I saw you two years ago after your surgery, you were totally happy. Now you're not. Things like that 
kind of come into play. You know, I think doctors tend to like, well, it can't be me. It can't be my surgery. I have all these other patients who are really happy with that surgery. So, you know, there might be something wrong with how you're perceiving things. And maybe I have more anxiety or depression, maybe of other things that are not, that I didn't know about before. And it turns into a, a cyclical kind of issue where then they're seeing other doctors and, and they're not necessarily even getting acknowledgement of their experience, much less any direction as to what to do, because they seem to be unhappy with their nasal breathing, whether it's immediately after surgery or sometime after surgery. So that's the idea of, of MTO syndrome, though, is that the dissatisfaction of the nasal breathing and the breathing experience and these new symptoms that are very disturbing, again, related to terminate surgery. So two questions for you then. Does technique and technology even matter then? Meaning, is submucous resection better than just trimming externally? And is the coblator better than the microdebrider? Or do any of those factors really matter? Well, maybe, maybe I could tell you what I do, and then I could tell you what I've seen. Okay. So what I do is, again, go for that goal of reducing this caliber of the turbine, reducing the size of the turbine while keeping its shape and position. So what I do is I, I make an incision in the anterior head of the turbine, either with a blade or with uh, actually with a low setting on the, of the needle tip cautery. I then find the bone of the turbine, and the turbine is one of those soft tissue structures that has a bone in the center of it. You can find this bony plane, and like a septoplasty, raise a flap and raises, I read this medial flap. The turbinate is a very interesting um, structure. It has a medial flap, which is closest to the septum, it has a central bone, and then a lateral flap, which is closest to the maxillary sinus. So the medial flap is three or four times the width and the, the depth of the lateral flap. So basically, you don't want to touch the lateral flap. So try not to ever touch that really ever at all. Once I have this plane elevated like a septoplasty, then I actually take some of the turbinate bone itself with um, a pediatric sort of uh, what we call a small forceps instrument, and I leave the bone that attaches it to the sidewall. So I leave the superior part of that turbinate bone, but I take out the central meaty part of the turbinate bone. And you see this on a CAT scan. Some patients just have a lot of turbinate bone, and that's the reason they have turbinate hypertrophy, or at least a big common of turbinate hypertrophy is actually not soft tissue, but actually bony. And I think that's really important to, to know, and I think all of us at Stanford actually do some limited to substantial bone resection within the turbinate. Now you have this submucosal channel. So it's all submucosal, by the way, and the, this dissection I'm talking about. I try to leave the surface tissue entirely intact. And then I use a pediatric microdebreeder, the 2.0 millimeter turbinate blade for microdebreeder use. And I just shave from posterior to anterior a superior channel within this submucosal tunnel on the medial flap only. And then a central channel and then a, an inferior channel. I'm trying to really reduce the thickness of that medial flap making it more like the lateral flap. But I try to never get a hole, ideally, trying to get a, a, a tear in that, in that turbinate flap. And I only go to the front anterior two-thirds of the length of the turbinate. I never really shave or do this microdebreeder submucosal reduction in the posterior one-third because that's where the artery is. And I've had a few turbinate bleeds in my time. So then with that all done, and now we have a much more reduced uh, turbinate from bone, partial bone resection, and from medial flap reduction, and then put a little flow seal or surgicel in that pocket so to avoid bleeding, sew up the anterior head, now have a very nice airway. I've usually already, have already done the septoplasty if they need it first. Now I can almost completely see the coena, and I can see from nostril rim all the way to coena, 
But then what I'll do is um, I'll use a radio frequency ablation uh, wand. I'm, t- I'm testing out um, another device for uh, radio. There, there's two or three types of radio frequency ablation uh, out there. So, um, but I'll, then I'll put a, a radio frequency uh, wand. It's a th- kind of a thermal wand almost into the posterior one-third of the turbinate where that artery is to just reduce that posterior aspect to avoid that problem I had mentioned before about residual posterior turbinate hypertrophy. And then I have, now I have a nicely symmetrically reduced turbinate from front to back. That's my technique. And it takes about 20, 25 minutes per turbinate. So it's a pretty involved procedure. It's not, right? I think what he did in residency was a five-minute kind of intending would leave the room, call me when the next patient's ready, kind of just very rapid turbinate reduction. It's no one's fault. It was just, it was just, that's how I think the turbinate was treated as like, all right, just quickly reduce the turbinate and, and get out of there. And I actually think it's one of the most important parts of the surgery because of the things I mentioned before about avoiding empty nose syndrome, avoiding tissue loss. And I think that my numbers speak for themselves. I think that having 3000 plus turbinate reductions, that means about 1500 patients who have turbinate reductions and two sides each. You have to usually, usually do both. That's how I get to 3000. So 1500 patients. 3,000 turbine eruptions, and I think I've gotten tissue loss unexpectedly in about three of those patients. Why that happened, I don't know. You know, because the same surgery in the same patient on the same day, and the right turbine looked awesome, but somehow the left turbine had a little bit of a scar to it, or a little bit of a buckle to it, or, or something like that, where you could tell that they had some, some little difference in how they were breathing. They were satisfied on the right side, for example, and maybe not on the left side. And they might have said something like, I don't know, I feel more blocked on that side. Really? You were pretty open. And that's that paradoxical nasal obstruction of empty nose syndrome. You're saying you're congested even though you look pretty open. But then I just usually leave it. Like, we just had surgery. We'll see in six months, things like that. And many times those symptoms thankfully resolve or sort themselves out. And in general, they're getting a new sense of their airway. Like, okay, I know I'm breathing better. I know I'm sleeping better, things like that. And generally, I'm improved. But in two cases, I think I've had to do something about the empty nose syndrome part of it. And I could talk to you about that. So that's what I've seen. And that's what I do now. The problem, I think, with turbinate reduction surgery is that I think we should get to a goal of hopefully in the next 20 years, where I think I have to retire anyway, but around 20 years' time, where we try to get a little bit more standardized in how we reduce turbinates. If you go around the world, there are 20 ways to skin a turbinate. There you can use scissors. You can use a direct cautery on the turbinate surface. You can do coblator. You can do radiofrequency ablation technique number one, number two, number three. You can do a combination of those things. Again, cardiac surgery. I think there's two or three ways to sew in a valve. If you don't do it that way, it's like, what are you doing? And I think that there should be, as we do this, and when we, as we hopefully appreciate that impotence syndrome exists and that it's an avoidable issue, it's an avoidable circumstance, if we just respect that principle that all mammals need six turbinates and we should try to keep that shape and size and that contour, and you'll avoid the dreaded issue and these dreaded symptoms in patients and have more satisfied patients, if we just keep the shape and structure, just reduce its size, then I think there should be two to four techniques out there that we all use in the world, wherever country we're in, as the accepted standard for how we reduce turbinates in a general sense. You know, again, unfortunately, doctors will do what their mentors taught them, and that's how we do it. But still, there should be the data out there. Um, and hopefully, you know, with time and with institutions doing evidence-based medicine and and taking on the literature and, and reading it and stuff like that, it'll permeate. And those practitioners who swore by their technique that may have led to some internal syndrome patients, you know, whatever it might be, well, eventually we do retire, no matter what. But I think the data speaks for itself. I mean, we have 18 publications or 20 or something on internal syndrome, and there are others out there from Korea, 
from Europe that to, to say that infantile syndrome is something you don't believe in or to say that infantile syndrome is, doesn't exist and I think that's a neurologic disease and that I think that at this point with the data that's out there in the last 10 years, that's head in the sand kind of thinking that your procedure may or may not have contributed to it, that it's all in a patient's head. That just doesn't work anymore because the data is so strong that turbinate surgery and oversection or some aspect of turbinate surgery may have led to this. And there are simple ways, I think, of addressing infantile syndrome sometimes and more complicated ways. But again, it's all out there and published. Let's get into it. Um, so how soon after turbinate surgery will a patient present with empty nose? And um, you'd mentioned the cotton test earlier. And if you could explain that to us. Sure. Um, so we published on some of this that when patients come to see me, you know, this has been now a labor of or love or interest or both uh, for at least uh, since 2013. So now I've seen over 350 patients referred to me for empty nose syndrome evaluation. So just trying to give you my summary of some of my experiences in this podcast, but the idea is that to answer the previous questions about coblator versus not. So I've seen all of those procedures, even submucosal reduction, even submucosal reduction in my hands lead to some emptiness syndrome complaints. But the most common I've seen for emptiness syndrome is direct use of scissors to clip off the turbinate. Then I think that there's so many examples of cautery being fine that it's hard to know if that's directly related to emptiness syndrome, but Patients will say in, on these internal syndrome forums that exist out there in Facebook and other places that they overcauterize their turbinates and they burned off my, ner- my nose and burned off the nerves of my turbinates and things like that. I'm just saying that there are probably hundreds of others who had the same surgery and that same procedure and didn't have that experience. But I've seen the list of there's every single technique that is out there for reducing a turbinate can lead to internal syndrome because any of those things can lead to excessive tissue loss. So... I don't think there's one mechanism for it, but I think scissors, because scissors will directly change the contour and the shape of a turbinate from a rounded cylinder, a rounded finger to a truncated finger or truncated cylinder. Therefore, that's the one that's most commonly associated with distorted nasal breathing and distorted experience of uh, satisfying nasal airflow. Okay. So then when patients develop, and we've also published on this that so some patients that come immediately after surgery, I knew right after they took out those Doyle splints, I just couldn't breathe. It was just a rush of air. It was cold. It was uncomfortable. It was not what I was expecting. It was much worse. It was much different than Afrin than I had before surgery. So some of them are immediate, but I think the majority are between six months to five years. That initially they just feel like they're, I think they're just giving you time. They're just recovering. It's just, okay, I don't love it. But, you know, it's okay. Or it really is okay. I really did feel good. And then something happened. Uh, you know, they had a cold. They moved. They went to visit Las Vegas. Now it's drier air. Oh, no, no. Something happened. I just couldn't breathe. And it was just, it was totally different for me. And it's hard to know what to make of that. It's honestly just hard to know what to make of it. Because maybe there's a, a change in the, the mucosa change in just in their, their lung capacity. I don't really know why suddenly they, something turns and switches. And that is the hardest thing about, about MDNO syndrome is that because I think that makes it harder to accept. And doctors naturally feel sometimes that they're under attack. Oh, well, I'm doing the surgery that later is now being ascribed to MDNO syndrome. And patients are, you know, can blame me at any time for something that happened five years ago, 10 years ago. Yeah, you know, I don't think anyone's blaming anybody. I just think that just the experience is there. And it turns out that 
replacing some of the turban tissue with various means, and we'll talk about, I'm sure, restores and removes those symptoms. So it was related in some way to the, to the loss of turban tissue and regaining turban tissue, remove those symptoms, which is great. And so at least it's remediable, but I think just acknowledging that it can happen and it can happen in a delayed fashion is important. And then what I do is uh, after I, so a patient just uh, again saw me yesterday with a um, concern of empty nose syndrome and came in from another state. And so for everybody, I just listen to the story and look at the imaging. In her case, she had very, she had a very nice surgery in general. She had a septoblastic turbulent reduction and limited sinus surgery. Okay. Unfortunately, she feels that she has some, some, you know, ongoing sinus infections. So that's a sort of a problem. But also just these things that she says about her breathing. I never had this before, but now it burns when I breathe. It's just air is rushing, flowing through my nose when it didn't do this before. It's very uncomfortable for me. These kind of things. I didn't press her. I didn't ask her. She's just say, naturally saying these things. Then I add or fill up my ANA 6Q, six item questionnaire. She has a score of 25. Uh, I'm like, okay, that's way above 11. Okay, so let's see. And then what I do is a blinded contest. So they don't know what I'm doing. They're sort of blindfolded when I'm doing this evaluation. It takes time to do all of this. And then I put things in their nose or I don't put things in their nose and I test them again, answer six questions again. So first thing I do is have them close their eyes and I put nothing in their nose. I put a little Blakesley forceps in there, touch the left side, touch the right side. They don't know that I'm not doing anything. They think I'm doing something, I think. But I just add them open their eyes, breathe through your nose. I just want to document the, the placebo effect. We're going to publish on this soon. We've done this on over 100 patients. Because you can really lead patients, right, with anything you do. And they're sometimes so desperate. They want to say, yes, I'm breathing better. Okay, but since they don't know what I'm doing and it's double-blinded, I don't know what they're scoring. They don't know what I'm doing. So then I, I found out that the, her score was a 22. So basically, she had no placebo effect. She went from 25 to 22, which is great. All right. So sounds like you, you, know, you didn't immediately rush to say I was improved. And some people have done that, by the way. And I don't know what that means. I just, you know, that means it might actually be sort of in your head or, or you're very anxious about being in my office. I'm not sure exactly. But in any case, then I completely block up their nose with cotton. So that's like a positive control. So I have a negative control or a placebo control. Then I do a totally plugged up their nose. And they don't like that either which is good. So the, that means that they want some airflow. Too little airflow, complete blockade is not good for them. Okay. So then we document that. Then I put cotton where tissue is missing. So in her case, she was missing some tissue in the medial aspects of both inferior turbulence. Almost it looked like a, like a little um, concavity in the central aspect of the inferior turbulence. Almost like what you'd want, right? For most patients, that's what they exactly want. As soon as I put the cotton there, in her case, she dropped 12 points. And ENS 6Q. So we published before that if you have a drop of seven points or more, then you likely have a treatable form of MTO syndrome. So it was actually reassuring for her. Like she didn't know what I was doing again. And she just said, I don't know. I like whatever you just did. I like it better. It's better than when I walked in. So I just restored a little bit of volume now with a piece of cotton, half cent piece of cotton on both sides. And she liked it more. She said, there's less airflow rushing through my nose. I feel more resistance. There even feels warmer. I just, it feels more comfortable to me. Great. So at least we have some idea. I'm not sure yet. I'm just meeting you for the first time, but we have some suggestion you have empty nose syndrome or symptoms of it. But again, I, I can tell you that, you know, this is not anything that anyone would have predicted. Your surgery looks great. I've had this kind of outcome and patients are very happy. So just letting you know that. But this is something that might resolve over time because turbulent tissue tends to hypertrophy again over time, which I think we mentioned before. And so that's, this is something that might resolve over the next, you know, one or two years. We'll see.
And sometimes you might need help with this symptom, but we'll, we can deal with that. But unfortunately, she has a sinusitis issue, so we have to deal with that first. That's how I kind of try to ferret through and sort out if you have MPM syndrome or not. I do it in a blinded fashion. When I first started doing this stuff, you know, because there was a contest out there, I just put kind of nose and said, hey, do you feel better? And universally, everyone said yes. And I thought I was doing a great job. And, um, and then I realized that I, then a lot of patients I would take to surgery and I would put these implants in their, in their nose to try to restore volume. And honestly, some patients weren't better. And a good majority were, but some weren't. And I think that they just were going to say yes to anything I said. Anything I did, they were going to say, yes, I'm better. And I realized that I had to be better than that. And so then I started doing this kind of sequential, graded, time-consuming empty nose syndrome contest. And also I do that all without any anesthesia. So there's no topical anesthesia, no topical digestion on the board, no lidocaine on board. So this is all native testing so that there's no other uh, variables in the equation. So I hope that helps uh, explain how we do the cotton test. And some patients totally fail the cotton test. They're like, I don't like that. I don't like it when cotton's in, in where tissue's missing. I don't like it when cotton's in the infirmitis. It all just feels terrible to me. You know, so I'm, I'm sure what to do with that. I put them on bedesonide rinses typically. I'll see them again in three months. I'll reevaluate. So it's not, some patients can't be figured out right then and there. Some patients need a second visit. Some patients just are very anxious about being there. They're very upset still about whatever their symptoms are after surgery. They thought they'd feel better. Now they feel worse and things like that. It might be something else that they need to, we need to figure out with them, but not everyone is figure outable in the first visit. Yeah. Yeah. It can be really complicated with these patients. So it's, it's very interesting to kind of hear that step-by-step process to kind of nail down what's going on. Is there any last um, parting words of wisdom that you want to leave our listeners with just to kind of put a bow on this? So let's see. Uh, in terms of the bow, so I think that, that these uh, issues can exist for empty nose syndrome after turbinate surgery. Turbinate surgery is a, uh, a surgery that helps thousands and thousands of patients every year, and it's not something to be maligned. I just think that because it, it can be associated with excessive tissue loss, aggressive aspects you know, along the, even the length of the turbinate can lead to scarring and lead to little changes in the contour, that we just have to be respectful of the procedure and the fact that we're guests in people's noses. We're guests in people's noses for a few hours. And they have to live with what we do for their life or for a long time. Conservative and small changes can lead to massive benefit for patients. So again, reducing but not resecting tissue, I think, is important as much as we can do it, at least for the turbinates. I think for the sinuses, it might be totally different. I make large openings for the sinuses, so I make large openings there. I think those are better for the sinuses, but that's a different topic altogether. If patients have these issues, I think it's important to, I think, acknowledge them rather than dismiss them and uh, that it might be the case and that there are these published criteria out there like these empty syndrome in 6Q. It's out. It's for public availability. It's something you can test patients on. Anyone can do a cotton test. That's all published. I said how, how to do that and where to place cotton. You've heard maybe how I, how I can do it. You can do it in a sequential fashion so that you're not biasing yourself and biasing the patient per se. And then uh, a simple thing that can be done by anybody, also published by us and others now, is gel filler injections. So one can just actually put a inert gel filler like a Prolarin gel, there's Renew gel, other ones that are used in facial plastics, for example, Restylane can be injected you know, with numbing up the tissues of the nose and injected into the sidewalls where the turbinate tissue is missing and plumping up the turbinate tissue in that area. And that can really assist with, okay, then that lasts two or three months. And then you can 
have the patient rather than forcing answers in your office in, in half an hour, okay, you have two or three months where you can just test this out. You can fly home or go home and you can test it out day and night for one season. And do you like this or not? If that's the case, then great. Then we have a very, even a better answer as to whether increasing tissue volume, replacing tissue volume in your turbinate area will assist you. And then sometimes patients can get repeat gel injections and that really helps them and that's all they need. I have several patients like that, no problem. And other patients, they say like, you know, I can't come back for those repeat injections. I just want you to make it more permanent. And then you can do uh, something called a cadaver uh, rib graft, which is what I've, I advocate. And we publish on that too. And there's videos on how to do that now available in the Laryngoscope and other journals and YouTube that uh, where you can make a submucosal pocket where tissues are missing and place a very fashion piece of cartilage, long three centimeter piece of cartilage, trying to replace that turbinate stock from trying to replace that contour where again, all mammals seem to need it in the, the, the you're trying to replace those as many of the turbines as possible, especially in the inferior one third of the nose. So that's, I mean, some of the take homes, I think from this, from empty nose syndrome and things like that. And I think that I appreciate the interest in, in, in this kind of topic. And um, I didn't expect <laughs> that a few years ago doing this kind of work. I was just curious about what, what this was. I saw a few patients with no turbinates and, and what is actually happening to them. And I didn't realize there was both such controversy to this at the time and such uh, mystery as to what's happening physiologically. But I think our papers finally show, and I'm not just trying to talk about our papers, but uh, show that that magnet effect seems to be happening. That when we restore that turbinate contour with this, these surgeries, we work with this computational fluid dynamics expert. It's a kind of like computer modeling of the nose, computer modeling of airflow through the nose. And so he doesn't know the scores. He doesn't know the scores of how these patients are improving. So many times after sinus, after these um, implant surgeries, patients' empty nose syndrome scores will go from the 20s to single digits. So single digits is like you and me. That's how we score on those six questions. So we're going from 26s to a number like seven. 19 to a number like three, things like that. So they're really very happy with their breathing. But I have their CAT scans. I try to do for the research part of this, I try to do CAT scans before and after surgery, for example. And we published on this too, that we take their CAT scans and then we send them to this our collaborator, Kai Zhao, who's at uh, Ohio State. And he doesn't know which one's pre and post per se. He's just going through it. And he's shown statistically significant improvements in the nasal vectors of breathing. And also that the airflow seems to congregate down towards the new turbinate, almost like a magnet. That was the idea of the magnet effect of the turbinate. So I think the turbines are, have a new function that we can ascribe to them, which is that they attract airflow and they allow and permit airflow. That's why the cotton test seems to work because we're just immediately applying a magnet through cotton and changing vectors of airflow through that. And I think that's why the turbinate restoration surgery and reconstruction surgery might help so well. So it's turned into... Um, quite an adventure, but, but I appreciate the interest. Yeah. Thanks for coming on the show. Thank you. Sure. Take care. Thank you so much for listening. If you haven't already, make sure to subscribe, rate the podcast five stars and share with a friend. If you have any questions or comments, direct message us at underscore backtable ENT on Instagram, LinkedIn, or Twitter. Backtable ENT is hosted by Gopi Shaw and Ashley Agan. Our audio team lead is Kieran Yen, with support from Caleb Hodson, Josh McWhorter, and Ness Smith-Savadoff. Design and digital marketing led by Brian Schmitz. 
with support from Taylor's version Hess. Social media and PR by Chi Ding. Thanks again for listening and see you next week.